Welcome to the South Dakota Soybean Pod, brought to you by South Dakota soybean farmers and their checkoff. I'm Tom Stever, discussing the incredible soybean, the people who grow it, and why that crop is so important. Our guest today has a passion for land stewardship so strong that she and her husband have been recognized nationally for their practices and promotion of soil health and for conserving resources through their farming methods. My name is Jamie Johnson and I am on the board of directors for the South Dakota Soybean Association. Brian and I farm just south of Frankfurt along the James River Valley and north eastern north central South Dakota and we farm with his parents Alan and Mickey Johnson. We have four kids ranging from 16 to 6. We farm corn, soybeans, spring wheat, winter wheat. We have some alfalfa and hay ground and then we also do cereal rye for cover crop and lots of other different cover crop mixes that we use on our farm whether for just cover or grazing mixes for our cattle operation. We also have about 120 head of commercial and registered Angus cattle. It's enough to keep you busy. Very much so. Jamie, is this a generational place? Has this been in the family? Correct, yes. Brian's great-grandfather homesteaded on the place that we live. Brian's the fourth generation, so my kids are the fifth generation to live and work on the operation. Do you look for one of your children to maybe settle in the place? Oh, we have one son, and he's 10, and he already runs the place. So (laughs) I anticipate that, I mean, there's no push or shove for anybody, but they're all welcome if they can find a way. But I feel like he'll be the one that runs the show. The last time that you and I talked face-to-face was at the 2022 Commodity Classic, where you and Brian were one of four regional American Soybean Association Conservation Legacy Award winners. How did you become interested in conservation farming to the point of being honored? Our farm has always been, I guess, ahead of the time with conservation practices. Brian's dad turned over the farm to no-till in the 80s. So it's more of a generational thing, I guess. I always say that my father-in-law, Alan, did all of the hard work because there was no no no-till machinery in the 80s. He had to fabricate and turn things over on his own and do a lot of his own research. And Dwayne Beck from Dakota Lakes Research Farm, he was actually at a research farm in Redfield, which is close to our farm in the 80s. And so my father-in-law became fast friends with him, and he's one of the main reasons that we do all the conservation practices that we do. But Brian and I, when we first got married, it's just part of how we farm and what we do. We don't know any different. And so we get to do all the fun things because my father-in-law did all the hard things. I give a lot of credit to Alan because we wouldn't be where we are without his hard work and bravery to buck all the trends back in the 80s so that we can do what we do now. Do you have an idea of why your father-in-law did what he did? Because it was a drought. It was burning up. They'd cultivate and the corn would burn up in July and lack of moisture. And so really a moisture issue. And now... Uh, We were just reading an article the other day about where, like, the drought line lies in the United States, like, over all the weather patterns and how that line will shift. Like, right now, it's pretty much, like, 281 from the Canada border to Mexico. That's probably where that line lies, where it's dry and where you get rain. 
and they were predicting in the next 100 years how that'll move like 70 or 80 miles to the east. So it'll lie right on the interstate almost between South Dakota and Minnesota. But moisture was a limiting factor, and so that's why he made the switch. As if to prove a point, Jamie, this isn't the only recognition for conservation practices. Tell us who else has taken notice of what you've done. We won the South Dakota Leopold Conservation Award in 2019. We also were a finalist for the NCBA's Conservation Award that they give out, the ESAP, the Environmental Stewardship Award. So we are regional winners of that also. And then the ASA Award. Not that you're seeking attention, but when one person notices, then other people notice. And Brian and I do quite a bit of speaking on and off throughout the year. And once you are recognized and people want to hear your story and what you're doing. And and that's part of our journey too is we've learned from a lot of people and we want to share what we've learned to help other people in their journey on their farms. What does it mean to you, Jamie, to be a conservation farmer? Uh, What does it mean to be a conservation farmer? Well, I feel like to everybody that means something different, right? Everybody's operations are different. Everybody has different soil types and topography and climate and all of those things. And for us, it just means, I mean, it's very cliche and a lot of people say it, but to leave it better than you found it, but it's doing more with less and being, just being good to the earth and it'll be kind back to you, right? And so we've really found that to be true when we take care of our soil and our environment, we can reap some pretty good rewards from it. And soil health. Because the two run hand-in-hand, conservation, farming, it seems like soil health is one of the results of that and certainly one of the reasons that one takes part in conservation farming. So what does soil health mean to you? A lot of different things. I try to explain it to people. It's very similar to human health. So when we put good things into our bodies, we're healthy human beings, right? We can perform at a high level. Well, the same thing with soil health. If you take care of your soil and its health, then you'll be able to produce healthier crops, healthier cattle. It's all very intrinsic and cyclical. So if you feed your soil good, nutritious things, it will produce good, nutritious things. So the same thing with our bodies. If we eat, sit down and eat a bag of Doritos, right, not very healthy. We can live off of it, but it's not very healthy. Well, the same thing with soil health. If you put good things into it, you'll get good things out. Do you find that there's a certain symbiosis in raising livestock and trying to keep your soil healthy? Absolutely. The cattle part of our operation is just as important as the row crop part of our operation. And we try to incorporate our cattle as much as we can into our cropping system because they really do contribute to the health of the soil, whether it's the natural manure or if it's their hoof action as they're grazing. All of those things can contribute to your soil health. You said the hoof action. Some people say that that's compaction, but how do you find that? It's just like everything else that you manage. You have to manage it properly. We don't have our cattle on corn stalks when it's wet and muddy and the freeze-thaw cycle. 
It's just like you manage the pests in your row crops, you have to manage your cattle. You can't just throw them out there and not pay attention to them or open the gate and not pay pay attention to them, right? It's just management. You need to pay attention. There's been lots of studies. I know the University of Nebraska has done studies on compaction and grazing cattle, and there's been shown to be no compaction issues if you manage it properly. Let's dig deeper in management that you just mentioned. What conservation practices do you use? We utilize a lot of different conservation practices. The number one thing, I guess, that we do or not do is no tillage. Everything that we do is no-till. And then we do variable rate fertilizer and seeding and all of that technology stuff. But then on top of it, we also do Small grains in our rotation. This year we had a lot of winter wheat and a little bit of spring wheat. Some years we have barley, some years we have oats. It just depends on what our forage needs are for our cattle side of the operation. And then behind those small grains, we can put in either grazing cover crop mixes for the cattle, or it might be something specific that we're looking for a resource concern on a field. Just for an example, this year we, behind our winter wheat, we planted just straight crimson clover, and that's a nitrogen fixer, so that'll be for next year's crop. So we're trying to reduce our commercial fertilizer by using a natural fertilizer. So we're also creating cover and habitat for wildlife, and then it's creating some natural fertilizer out there. So cover crops, rotational grazing, and then trying to keep that diverse rotation instead of just strictly a corn bean rotation, really getting um, that small grain in there so that you can work the cover crop system a little bit better. You mentioned putting healthy things into the soil and making soil healthier. So how much is conservation farmers moving that soil health needle? It's just like everything. You don't expect your corn crop to magically increase 20 bushels in one year. So the soil health is the same thing. It takes many years of doing these practices to build up those levels. And we've been doing these things for over 15 years now. And we're getting to the point where there's no call for additional fertilizer on some of our fields because of the conservation practices that we've employed on those fields for the last 15 years. So it takes time. You have to be patient. But we are definitely seeing some results. How is productivity affected through all of this? We produce some amazing crops. I mean, we're producing just as good as the next guy. We see no lagging at all. What we really have seen, most importantly, I feel like, is the water retention availability. We have really seen that we can weather dry stretches and droughts just as well as we can use up extra water during a wet season. So we're really being able to weather the storm, so to speak. We're taking the highs and lows out of the weather, so to speak. You can create a consistent crop, wet or dry. Okay, so the bottom line, how does it affect the bottom line on your farm? It saves you money. We've really seen the decrease in chemical usage, fertilizer, all the things. It saves you money. It might be an upfront cost for your seed if you're using cover crops, but you'll get that back tenfold. The economics are staggering if you can really sit down and pencil stuff out. And sometimes that's a limiting factor for people to get in because they're like, oh, the seed is expensive, but you spend a lot of money on your corn seed and your soybean seed. It's an investment and it will return your money back for sure. So what are the biggest challenges that you run into in maintaining that upward momentum in soil health? 
I think the biggest thing is our mental capacity. I think we are a limiting factor. We need to always be pushing the envelope, trying new things. And I think there's nowhere but up. I think if we can just keep pushing the envelope and keep trying to do our best, we'll see results. They may be incremental. They may be small, but you're not going to see huge results every single year. You've mentioned that you share your knowledge about conservation farming, about soil health. So what is your message to farmers in that regard? Just to try it. You might put in your own seed plot with corn or soybeans or something like that. I mean, most farmers are pretty willing to try some new things with soil health practices or conservation, whatever you want to call it. I always tell farmers, pick your smallest field, if it's 40 acres, if it's 30 acres, and try a cover crop mix on that. Take your least risk field and try something. And you have to try it more than once. You can't, oh, I had a crop failure. Just because you got hailed out this year doesn't mean that you're not going to plant corn again, right? Try it again. There's a lot to learn and there's a lot of space to learn. And talk to your neighbors. Find people that have done it in your area and and what works for them, right? What works on my farm may not work four hours south of me, right? Your soil is different. Your topography is different. Your rainfall is different. You really need to know what your resource concerns are and what you're trying to accomplish and then go from there. Try it on your smallest field. I tell the story a lot and I get a chuckle because... How we started using rye on our farm was because I tried it on my garden. It's a true story. We should have planted more rye this year. That's how Brian, I got him to try rye. It was because I used it on my garden first. So even if it's just your garden, try it on your garden first. Least risk, smallest piece of land you got. (laughs) So what do you wish that all farmers knew about soil health, about conservation farming? That it's a journey, just like all farming is, right? It's a process and it's a journey and it's a mindset and that it doesn't happen overnight. Like I said, our hard work was done 30 years before we started farming. And that's where maybe some people need to start is where we started 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And that's a hard change, but it can be done and it can be very fruitful. I feel like it's a peaceful way of farming. I don't worry about things like I did when we were first married, I guess. Like, droughts and weather and if we're going to have a crop because I've seen what we've weathered and a lot of that Brian and I both contribute to the practices that we use so I feel like it's less stressful but it's a process and it's a journey so take the first step and keep asking questions and keep asking for help. You said that you don't worry about the things that you worried about when you first were married. Did you marry into farming? Did you grow up in it? I grew up in Nebraska on a farm. Yep, in the 80s, and things were tough and tight, and we milked cows growing up, plus we had an Angus operation. And we farmed just enough to feed the cattle. It was not a row crop, what I married into, basically. So yeah, that's all I really know. I went to college and don't use my college degree. (laughs) And that's okay. What is your college degree? My degree is in history, English, and political science. So maybe a little bit on the policy side since I'm involved with the soybean board, but I'm kind of a history policy junkie. All right, let's talk about aside from raising a family and raising crops on your farm and you and Brian working together and doing that, do you have any hobbies? What are your interests and passions outside of that? Oh, I have a lot. Right now I'm, I garden. We didn't talk about that before. I garden 
flowers, native landscape. That's kind of my thing right now. I, in a previous life, was a pretty good runner. (laughs) I ran in college, cross country, and so I kind of do that on the side when I have time. And my kids, my oldest girls are volleyball players, so I really enjoy watching them play volleyball together and do what they are good at and what they enjoy. I like to read when I'm not extremely tired and want to go to bed at night. I'm a sewer in a previous life. When my kids are gone, maybe I'll get back into sewing. And, you know, I have lots of interests that maybe someday I'll get back to. <laughs> you had mentioned the age of where your kids are. And you've also mentioned that you simply enjoy the things that they do growing up. Talk about that a little bit and how important that is in being part of a farm spouse. You know, my big girls, they're 16 and almost 14, so they're volleyball players, and they play out on the cement for hours after they've been at practice all day. I mean, they just love playing volleyball, and I can stand at my kitchen window and watch them play together, and then they'll bring out their six-year-old little sister, and she's playing with them, and they take the time to help her learn how to do things correctly, and Leo... Our son is usually right on Brian's right hip doing something, stacking bales or driving a tractor. So it's a nice season of life when I can step back and watch them do their things and I don't have to hold their hands anymore. And then I don't have to do the work because they can all run the tractor and grain cart and do all the things. So I've kind of trained myself out of a job. So it's kind of (laughs) nice. And then they'll all leave and I'll have to do it again. (laughs) Did you imagine that it would be that way? That was kind of the goal. That's part of how we've raised our kids right next to us so that they know how to do things and they ask questions and they, they work right alongside of us, whether it's the garden or the harvest or calving cattle or whatever it is, they're always expected to be helping and, and then they know how to do it on their own. Whoever comes back to the farm, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't really care. I just want them to have an appreciation of farm life and where their food comes from and all the work that it takes to do those things. It's pretty fantastic to look out your kitchen window and see the things or sit on your deck or whatever situation you have on your farm. And, you know, when our oldest was five, no, I didn't. You're just drowning in baby diapers and all the things, right? But it's all a season. I always say that. I said, it's just our season right now, what we're doing. And in five years, that season will change again. But it's a pretty great way of life. I can't imagine raising kids any other way. All of the questions that I've asked to this point, I think are leading to this one, but I left it until now. Why do you farm? Why do we farm? That's all we know. I guess we were both raised on farms and Oh, that's just a passion and a way of life. I'll be honest. I'm recorded on multiple platforms saying I hated farming growing up. I hated the work. I hated the hours. We milked cows, so we didn't do anything, right? But there's something in owning what you do and being responsible for the care of the land and animals and raising up the next generation that will take over those operations. And, man, it's just something... I couldn't do anything else probably, maybe a part-time job in town, but there's just something about working the land and being with your spouse and your kids and getting to do it together. I think that's my favorite thing. Most people hate working cattle, but that's my favorite because where everybody has a job, like I said, I've trained myself out of a job. (laughs) 
I didn't even hardly have to help this year because my oldest, she's helping with the AI process and she put cedars in cows. And I mean, it's just fantastic to sit back on the rail and, and watch that stuff. And your little ones are getting strong enough to pull gates. It's just doing it together. I think that's my favorite thing. And then to have grandpa in the Grandpa's always somewhere, and I feel like that's really special to have all three generations, whether it's harvesting corn or beans or wheat or whatever you're harvesting or whether it's the cattle process. All generations are there, so that's pretty special. I can tell that you take pleasure just in witnessing that happening. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Not very many people get to do that. I take a lot of pride in that. How did you and Brian meet? A fun story. Like I said, I was policy junkie. I went to Mount Marty in Yankton, history, political science major. And so the spring of my junior year, I did the South Dakota legislature internship program. And he was a senior at SDSU. And he also did the same internship program. And that was his last semester of school. That's all the credits he needed to graduate. And so he did that internship through the end of session and then went home and farmed. Well, I still had one more year at school. So that's how we met. I was an intern on the House side, and he was an intern on the Senate side. And it was sort of like the last hurrah for both of us. Like, okay, this is the last spot I can find somebody new and (laughs) maybe find somebody. And it happened and worked out good. It sounds like Yeah, farming is quite a journey, and everyone has their own story of how they've gotten where they are and what their future goals are, and it's fun to have the process and the journey. Ours always focuses on the the conservation side of it, you know, but everybody has their one thing that they're really passionate about, and that's just ours. That's Jamie Johnson from Frankfort, South Dakota. She and her husband Brian's inspiration comes from passing their stewardship knowledge to other farmers, and most importantly, to the next generation and generations after. The South Dakota Soybean Pod is brought to you by South Dakota Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and at sdsoybean.org. Hear the South Dakota Soybean Network on the air, weekly on several South Dakota radio stations. Thank you for listening to the South Dakota Soybean Pod. I'm Tom Stever.